Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, welcome everyone. This is Lainey. I'm the, the big voice coming at you. You can't see me from the library marketing team at HarperCollins. And we're really glad you joined us because we have a very special interview today. We're joined by Sarah Nelson, VP Executive Editor at HarperCollins Publishers. And she has a special guest in the studio today. She has her author. <laughs> we have the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, Heather Morris. Welcome, and we're so excited for this conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So, um, uh, Heather, Heather was a great discovery of mine. Can I say that? Um, I've been at Harper about a year, and um, I had uh, been an editor in, in life only for about a year, and I stumbled on a manuscript that was called The Tattooist of Auschwitz, it uh, came to me um, through uh, its publisher in the UK, and Bonnier Zaffer, and I got this manuscript, and I read it in my office on my computer for the first 30 pages or so, and I thought, <gasps> and, I, and I do what I always do when I really love something, I said, I have to go home and get in bed and read this now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care that it's 11 o'clock in the morning, that's what I do. So that's what I did, and uh, I, I had to have, my husband reminded me of this just today, he said, you couldn't stop talking about this book. This is what you talked about until you had locked down the deal and you had the book um, for Harper. So um, so I'm, I'm especially thrilled because uh, it was, uh, it's like it's like your first child and um, and that it's grown up and done so well in life. Thanks uh, to you. Well, uh, and thanks to the here. book and thanks to you. Uh, and so Heather and I didn't meet until a little bit along in the process, though we communicated through the pages of the book. And uh, so I just wanted to introduce everybody to Heather and to um, ask some questions and have a little conversation about the Tattooist of Auschwitz and the the, um, the man behind the Tattooist of Auschwitz, Lali Salkalov. Um, before we start, I also I want to thank um, the Forest Hills branch of the Queens Public Library. Uh, I know you guys have been a huge fan of this book, and I'm sorry that you're not here uh, in the studio with us, but I understand that you are watching in a group at home. So thank you, and we are really happy to have you and, and everybody else here. Just a reminder, if you're listening in, you can ask questions, and at the end we'll reserve a little time for Heather to answer a few. So I'll be waiting, and I'll cut you guys off for some questions. Okay. Um, so let's start with how this book came to be. You, this is your first book, your first published book, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you were wandering down the street in Melbourne one day and... Yeah, I found it in the gutter. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nearly. Mm -hmm. I had a coffee with a friend, casual meeting, and she just simply said to me, by the way, I have a friend whose mother has just died. I went, oh, sorry to hear that. She said, yes, but his father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. Would you like to meet him because that person can't be Jewish? 
You're not Jewish, she said. Do you want to meet him? And I said yes. That was a requirement, one of Lala Sokolov's yeah. requirements. I Absolutely. So you said yes, I'd love to, sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, let's line right. it up. I'll but right. but you had no door. idea what the story was? No, uh -huh. I didn't. Uh -huh. Okay. And so you called him? Or? I knocked on his door. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly a week later, I knocked on his door and this 87-year-old man stood in front of me with a dog on each side of him. And he couldn't lift his head up from the floor he didn't look me in the eye, he just said the word come. Mm -hmm. And he turned around and he and the dogs went back inside. Mm -hmm. So I followed, mm -hmm. as you do. Mm -hmm. Sat down at the designated table. He then disappeared again with the dogs into the kitchen and then came out and gave me the first of many very bad cups of coffee. <laughs> that was my introduction to Lonely Sokoloff, bad coffee. Uh -huh. He never once asked me how I wanted it. I was getting it the way he presented it. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason he couldn't look at me was because he was so grief-stricken. Mm -hmm. His wife, Gita, the love of his life, had died only a few weeks earlier. Oh, it was right that early. Yeah, yeah that reason. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to join her. Mm -hmm. But before he joined her, he wanted somebody to hear his story. Mm -hmm. Not about the fact that he had been the tattooist, the tetavera, mm -hmm. but he wanted to tell the love story of Gita, mm -hmm. the 18-year-old girl whose army held while he was stabbing numbers into it, dressed in rags and a head shaven, unbathed for weeks. And he was telling me 60 years later, I knew in that second I would never love another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was the story Lali Sokolov wanted told. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for, for just uh, to step back for a second um, to those who haven't yet read the book, um, this, the Tattooist of Auschwitz, the story is about uh, the love affair between Lali and Gita and how they protected each other in the camps. Lali was uh, taken to Auschwitz concentration camp and made the tattooist because uh, he spoke a lot of languages and he was very, he was a very dapper, charming, Absolutely. collegial guy. And uh, and even, even the Nazis could see that he might be of value to them. So uh, he was given the rather dubious uh, honor of being the tattooist and to defile his fellow Jews uh, with these numbers, which were the, obviously the symbol of the concentration camp um, and of the Holocaust. So um, so one day he was doing his job, uh, and his job afforded him some slightly better uh, um, uh, treatment than, mm. than the average uh, inmate. He had a little bit more food and a little bit more freedom and lived in a slightly better cell block. Yeah. Um, uh, but he also could interact with people. And so, as Heather just said, uh, one day in the line, there was this girl in the line, and she presented her arm to be tattooed. And it was like you see in the movies, right? They yeah. Just, it, and, um, you know, the rest is the, rest is this book. Um, so w w you walk in there, you say, hi, I want to hear your story. And then what? I mean, did he immediately spill it out? Did he, what, what happened? Yeah, just quickly, I need to say that Lully and every survivor I have met from the Holocaust, and I've met many, so privileged, they all say they survived because they were lucky. That word luck and lucky comes up in every conversation I've had. And Lully would have used that immediately too. Mm -hmm. He started literally rambling. Mm -hmm 
But he had this delightful Eastern European accent, which just had me spellbound from the mm-hmm. get-go. I couldn't make sense of what he was saying. He was using phrases and words that were foreign to me, including he would slip occasionally back into either Slovakian or Russian or German. Mm-hmm. But all I knew at that first meeting was, you're a lovely old man. I'm enjoying being in your company. I'll listen, you talk. So I'm getting snippets, these tiny little vignettes, never completed. But there was enough there for me to say to him after two hours, I think that's enough. Can I come back and see you in a few days? Mm-hmm. And he said yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no recording material. I was not interviewing him. Mm-hmm. I was sitting, listening to him. Mm-hmm. And so I came back. Mm-hmm. And I kept coming back for three years. Mm-hmm. For three years. So every mm-hmm. couple of days for three years? Um, after a while, once he got past that stabbing grief of, that he was feeling, mm-hmm. and he stopped saying the words that greeted me every time I met him, have you finished my book yet? Hurry up and finish my book. I need to be with Gita. Mm-hmm. And it was after three or four months when he got to know me, and he met my family, and he understood who I was and what I could bring to telling his story, mm-hmm. that he stopped saying, I want to be with Gita. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he started reconnecting with the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And he started unburdening. Mm-hmm. And he started telling me the trauma, the pain, and yeah, the guilt, the survivor guilt he had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it came out after many months. But um, up until that point, it had been clinical, um, matter of fact mm-hmm. about what he'd seen and experienced. Mm-hmm. And by this point you were taking notes or, or taping, right? Uh, no, not for a good three or four months. Mm-hmm. I was having to race home, jump on my computer and try and remember it. Right, right. And I uh, hear these foreign words which I couldn't even find when I googled them because uh-huh. I didn't know how to spell them. Right, right. They had you, some you pretty fancy titles, some of those SS people. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, but no, it was many months before I even took him some notes and said, now can you please explain what an Obershafira is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and who these names you've given me, who are they, and, mm-hmm. and spell them correctly, please. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when when did you start to see this as a book? Were, were you thinking that you were going to write it as a screenplay first? I know you Absolutely. had been interested in doing screenplays. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it was always going to be a screenplay for me. Mm-hmm. I never knew how to write a book, never considered I could do that. Mm-hmm. But I had done some training in how to write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. I'd learned that there's a formula, here are the rules, stick mm-hmm. to them, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So that was how I was writing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm delighted that, of course, he didn't get to see the book, but he saw many drafts of the screenplay and... Mm-hmm. He signed off on it, trust me. Uh-huh. He signed off on the screenplay, so he really never understood that it was going to be a book? Nope. Wow, wow. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how it, how it became a book? Um, somebody d- discovered you, right? Um, yes, long-winded, a little bit. Uh, for six years, a film company in Australia had the option on the screenplay, mm-hmm. so I couldn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to get it made into a film in Australia. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So when I got the option back on it, uh, I was visiting my brother and sister-in-law in in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Now they were the ones, well my sister-in-law who one night, leant over the table and said to me, for goodness sake, write the thing as a book and get on with it. Mm -hmm. Oh sure, I can give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Through a crowdfunding campaign to raise awareness of the book's existence, Mm -hmm. this young, beautiful editor in Melbourne reached out to me and we met in a market 
sitting on a box with our feet on a dirt floor, mm-hmm. surrounded by fish and fruit and veg. Mm-hmm. And she bought me a coffee. A coffee. Better than Lully's. I was going to say, how was mm-hmm. the coffee? Yeah, it's improved, right. okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, had a chat to me and said to me, come back to my office. Took me back and introduced This was Angela, office. right? Angela. Angela Meyer. Right, right. A genius, right? Absolutely. So she saw it and she said, we can work on this together. We can work on this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And exactly her words to me were when I said to her, can I write it, can I write it, were, we think you've got the chops to have a go. Oh, thank you. Okay. So how had a go. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The result. Right. 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 Well, so when I got it, it was uh, already, it was not yet published in the UK. I think it had been published in Australia, but it was not yet the phenomenon it was about to be. Um, but, uh, and, and uh, Angela and I did some work, not that I ever met her, I'd love to meet her someday, um, sort of transatlantically went over the draft and, and mm-hmm. did our comments uh, and um, came up with a final draft that went on sale in the UK, I think in January yes. of, of 18. And we were not going to be published until September. We were not publishing until September, just really more having to do with just our, our publication schedule and, and the decisions uh, that go into a publication, mm-hmm. which we should talk about the cover, because I think the cover choice here is, a, is, is interesting. Um, but it was interesting because we bought it, uh, we, buy, we buy the rights, we bought the American and Canadian rights, North American rights. and. Um, we didn't, I don't know that we announced it necessarily. I mean, it was sort of known within the publishing community. And I started to get a couple of emails. I mean, I wouldn't say a dozen. I would say four or five from people saying, I run this little bookstore in Virginia, and I heard about this book, and I heard you're publishing it. And I was traveling in Europe, and I heard about this okay. book, and I heard you're publishing it. You know, when will you have it? And then I got another one from somebody saying, uh, just a regular person saying, I read this book when I was on vacation in Australia, and I, you know, want to get it for my sister or whatever, and I, you know, when can I get it? And I hadn't been in publishing all that long, but... I don't think that happens all the time. I mean, we love for that to happen, that there's I'm buzz I'm getting those emails there. too, by the way. Right. right. From, were, from people in America uh, finding me on before, my website before, and saying, well, hey, before. where's this book? Right. And it was so... It's coming. It's it coming. Was so, yeah. And it was like, how do you know about this? I mean, this is... You can't pay for this. You know, this is what you want <laughs> as a publisher is, you know, sort of buzz, you know, out there on the railroad tracks, you know. So... Um, so we, we knew, I mean, we, we knew it was a fantastic book, and we knew that we had, we knew that something was going to happen. I mean, you get a feeling about a book, and, and again, I'm just sort of learning this. This is my, my mm-hmm. first time in this, and it's certainly th- the most successful book I have ever been involved with, uh, and, and maybe will remain that for forever. Um, I mean, it's not common to have a book take off like this, is what I'm saying. And so, um, so, uh, we st- we we chose a cover which I don't know if I ever told you this about the whole complicated I choosing do. a cover. Okay, I had as I said only um, been an editor for for a couple of uh, for a little over a year. I'd only worked directly on maybe three or four books before this. So we have this book called the Tattooist, Tattooist of Auschwitz, and we take it to the art department. Our art department here is wonderful. Um, and we had as samples the covers that are done in in other countries mm-hmm. um, and in the UK, in Australia, and they tended to be more 
um, typically, I don't mean this in a in any judgmental way, but they tended to be more clearly Holocaust-related covers. They were, uh, the one in the UK is um, naked arms with, intertwined with tattoos on them against a blue and white, blue striped background, which was the color of the pajamas that people wore in Auschwitz. Uh, um, the Australian is the it's very dark one. It's even more austere. It's, yeah, it's just very the hands grim, just on, the black. A, on a black cover. Mm. Um, so I didn't really know what I was doing. So I said, oh, well, those are good. <laughs> they look fun <laughs> to me. Um, and we have a lot of meetings here about these things. And I mean, every decision, I mean, what, I've, what I've been learning in this job is that every Every book takes a million decisions. I mean, w whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter, and you don't know if they are, but the cover, the type, the mm -hmm. size of the book, the fact that we published in, uh, originally in uh, paperback original, whereas um, a lot of books are uh, the sort of mainstream ideas to publish in hardcover. There are reasons that you make all the various yeah. decisions that you make. And so with the cover, um, our publisher, associate publisher, Amy, um, Baker kept saying, you know, that's not the cover, that's not the cover, the, the arms, the, the stripes, that's not the cover. And we went through several versions of this cover to get a couple, and she kept saying, if it says Auschwitz on the cover, you don't have to show Auschwitz. And that's, yeah. you know, that is a lesson that I, I actually used a version of that with an author on a completely other book the other day. I mean, if you don't have to, to make it if you say it, you don't have to show it, and if you show it, you don't have to spell it out. So, um, and we did feel that the the strength or the the interesting thing about this book was the personal nature of it, the uh, the romance of mm -hmm. it, uh, and um, and the backstory. So this was a way to show that this was a book about people, not about being Jewish or war or historical, uh, historical, academic, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really was a, a, a love story that happened to be set in a concentration camp. Yes. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, I, I am grateful to Amy for kind of helping me to see that that is what I think is a lot of the success of this book. And, and one of the, and now I'm talking too much and you're supposed to talk. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but we, uh, what we're seeing with this book is that it's um, it's very popular everywhere. It's hugely successful, as we know, um, but it's doing extraordinarily well uh, in places that are not eastern or big cities that are not necessarily don't necessarily have large Jewish population. You don't have to be Jewish to read this book. No. And Molly was right. You don't have to be Jewish to write this book and you don't have to be Jewish to read this book. Um, it's a book about love and survival and triumph over adversity and uh, that is about as universal a message as you can get. Yeah. I think, you know. So 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 tell me some more. So were you like hanging out with Lolly to the point that you're husband said, who's this lolly guy? What are you doing? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there were a few times he said, uh, should I be jealous? Because lolly started taking me out. Uh -huh. When he reconnected with the Jewish community, it was now some social events. And he and his cohorts actually were very, very social. They would get together and have a, a, like a party with 100, 200 people in it. Mm -hmm. And he would ask me to come with him. He, we would walk into a room with a few hundred people in it and he would stand at the front and just announce to the world, Lolly is here. <laughs> my girlfriend. She my girlfriend? 
ladies, you look after her, I pick her up on the way out. <laughs> that was this charming rascal of a man who then started to live again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not only were we going out to these social events, we were just going down to coffee shops and he'd walk into a coffee shop near where he lived because they made better coffee and mm. I soon worked out that I needed decent caffeine to be greeted by everybody in them. He was just so well known and loved. Mm-hmm. I'd walk down the street where he lived with him and his dogs and people on the other side of the street or would walk past us and say, hey, Lolly, hey, Tetevera. He was known throughout the Jewish community in Melbourne Mm -hmm. for the role that he had in Mm -hmm. Mm Auschwitz-Birkenau. It was no secret, but he just would not talk about it in any kind of public way while Gita was alive. Mm -hmm. It was her death that made him decide, I want the world to know. What do you think it was just, it was going to be his last opportunity to talk about it or... Yeah. yeah. Gita did not want to talk about any aspect of their time. She had shut it all out, locked it away, mm-hmm. never to be revisited, mm-hmm. except with Lali. Mm-hmm. And I said to him many times, you know, and Gita, would you talk about this again? And he said, only in the bedroom, mm-hmm. because to them, to Gita, it was not something to be discussed with any other person. Mm-hmm. Her role mm-hmm. was too painful. Mm-hmm. You know, she made a show tape for Steven Spielberg. Right. And she made it on the condition that Lully never watch it. Wow. And he didn't. Uh-huh. But and did I she did. talk about it? Did she? Yeah, look, she was still fairly clinical about because uh-huh. she had made it begrudgingly. Lully right. had almost, he said he bullied her into doing it. But she's quite clinical, but there are a couple of times where she does get emotional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it was through her that I was able to learn about what her life was really like in the camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was quite powerful to see this, and I could see why she didn't want Lully to see it. Mm-hmm. Because she probably never really got emotional with him about it, and he, she wouldn't want him seeing that. Mm-hmm. It's all about protecting the one you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the video that we um, uh, put out when the book came out of, of Lolly being interviewed, it's a short video, yeah. it's so emotional. Um, and I wonder if the fact that she was gone made it, it made him able to be that emotional about it and that he would never have been able yeah. to do it earlier. I feel bad about that when I see it, that I did that, because that was actually only a few weeks after I met him. Mm-hmm. And I did ask him, could I just film you briefly? Because, as I said, he kept saying to me, I want to be with Gita. Right. I, I want just something from you. Right. And so with a handful of young people that my kids sort of organized we had this chat in a studio small little studio that take that you have was the first take Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that was the one that he suddenly did break down Mm -hmm. with me Mm -hmm. can I say that for the next two hours we had the most amazing time Mm -hmm. as he started to laugh and giggle and interact with these young people Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, it was so funny to see him he was told by the director because he had a cup in front of him and the director put a tiny dot on the table. And he said, now, Lally, if you want to take a drink, just can you put it back on the dot? Well, you're trying to film this man who would have a cup of drink and then he'd go, <laughs> <laughs> trying to find the dot. <laughs> right. um, and so, yeah, cut. Wow. Um, now, the one time he nailed it and he got it on the dot and he put it down like that and he went, oh, I got it! <laughs> cut. <laughs> so we did have a lot of fun with him, even though the end product that you see right. is this really distraught man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
when you started this project, did you have what what was your feeling about what it what its purpose was? I mean, you, you just wanted to help him tell his story, inspire other people to look. It had had many aspects to it. Uh, as I said, I wrote it as a screenplay because I thought that this story of love and of hope and of courage and survival needed to be played out on a screen. Mm -hmm. And, and so, it will be. We'll get, yeah, back, it will to be. We'll get back to that. Okay. And then when I turned it into a book, it then became, well, how do I then make this relate the same way that I had seen it played out visually? And uh, thankfully the amazing editors and publishers that I had agreed for, uh, let me write it the way I wanted to write it, which was in Lully's voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To me, it was so important that you, the readers out there, you actually had no idea who I was, who wrote this story. Because it might be my book, but it's Lully's story. And so telling it in that way still took many years, of course. But something tells me the timing was right mm -hmm. and that uh, coming out 10, 12 years ago may not have had the same impact. Mm -hmm. Don't know what, just, just my gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And what did I want? I wanted people to know about Lali Sokolov and I wanted people to know about the love and the hope and the humanity that he told me existed in this most evil of places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other little stories that I've got from people who I've subsequently met to reinforce that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me some of those? Yes. Yeah, look, the couple who have said to me, my parents met in Auschwitz too. Right. So if they were not the only ones. It happened many times. The woman who, while I was signing a book, to, said to me, I'm only here because of Lully and another brave man whose name we do not know. Now Lully had told me stories along this many times. He said he did this hundreds of times and I never wrote about it because I thought it is just a stretch too far for people reading my writing up. I said to her, get behind me. When I'm finished here, I want to talk to you. Because I knew from her age that she had not been in the camp. Right. And she told me about her dad and how all her and her brother's life, her dad had been telling them constantly, you only exist because Luddy the Tetevera, and that's what he was called, mm -hmm. and a man whose name I do not know. 17-year-old boy, he was in one of the blocks in Birkenau that had been designated to go to the gas chamber the next day. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. We, all you people have been here six months, you're now weak, you're no longer as productive as we want, into the gas chamber, we've got plenty more coming in. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. He was in this block, Lully turned up with an old man, probably 30, mm -hmm. and Lully pulled him outside and told him that this man had come to Lully and said, I'm weak, I'm not going to survive, I'm sick. Make my death matter, make it count. What can you do? Because he'd heard what Lully had been doing for others. Mm -hmm. And so Lully took this man and he took this 17-year-old boy and he changed their numbers on their arm. That man went into that block that all went to the gas chamber the next day. That 17-year-old boy Lully took back to the other block. Because you've got to remember, they were just numbers. Mm -hmm. And that 17-year-old boy lived and moved to England and had a family. Now, Luddy said he did that hundreds and hundreds of times I changed people's numbers. Right. There is one story in the book where he does that, where he... Yeah, for changes. a different reason. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but this was purely swapping the numbers of somebody who was going to sacrifice their life. Right. Um, what what has been the most s- surprising reaction you've had to the book? Um, that it is being read by people, and it is having an actual effect on them emotionally in terms of I'm going through a tragic or traumatic time in my life, and I am now reading this book, and it is giving me hope. Mm-hmm. They, they all get the love story. It's there, splattered on the page and on your cover. Mm-hmm. But they're also finding what I hope they would, which is that whole notion of hope that you can continue, can get up the next morning. Mm-hmm. And some of the emails I've had from people, and I get thousands. Just Do you get thousands? I get thousands. Mm-hmm. And they tell me about a, a time in their life, which is happening right now, the couple in England who hadn't been able to have a baby, a child, for 10 years, had a baby, and the little boy died after 16 days, and how he walked away from his marriage and wanted to give up because, to him, he'd lost all hope in having a family and being able to have a successful relationship with his wife. He read my book, he gave it to, went back and gave it to his wife and said, read this. They're now back together again, and they say, we have hope that we can now live together as a couple, whether or not we ever have children mm-hmm. now is, is not the, what matters. Mm-hmm. The men in a prison in London who had one of the wardens write to me and say, we read your book and it has given us hope that we can get out of our prison and if bloody can have a good life, mm-hmm. then we may be able to. And I got to go and meet a hundred of those men. Mm-hmm. I sat in a prison with a hundred very naughty boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And watch them, watch them break down. They were comforting each other. And they were naughty boys. But they were all saying, you know, you have given us hope that we can go back to our family and have a life. Mm-hmm. And they're asking me to write and sign books to my mum and say, Mum, I'm sorry, I'm here. I won't come back again. Mm-hmm. To my wife, I'm so sorry. I promise I'll help out with the kids as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. Wow. And many, many more. Um, can you talk a little bit about the movie? Um, I, I gather that the it's movie not going to have Ryan Gosling in it like Lolly wanted. Right, oh, he's too right, old. Right, he wanted he wanted Brad Pitt, didn't he? Oh, he went from Brad Pitt, and when I pointed out he was too old, he then because well, Lolly was what twenty years old or something. Had twenty five. Yeah, and uh, right. he settled on Natalie Portman to pay Gita. Heads up, no no question about that one. Oh. And it was uh, some of the most amazing times I had with him because we had to then start going to movies. Right. Who was going to play Lali Sokolov? Right, right, right. Many I took him to. Many I was going to play Heather Morris. Yeah, 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 yeah. Move on, love. (laughs) But um, yeah, he would just sit there and look at me and go, "What were you thinking?" Until we saw the Notebook. Uh huh. Ryan Gosling naked from the waist up, ladies. He's on the screen and Lali's on his feet. That's me. He should be me. (laughs) That's hilarious. You down the front. Turn around. Look at me. Look at him. (laughs) So funny. Yeah. So yeah, Ryan Gosling, who now right. too old too. Right. But so what? It, they're working on a movie, as I understand. It's going to yeah, include some movie. of the backstory. Uh, they're working on a mini series. Oh, I'm sorry. So mm-hmm. we're, we're going to go to television mm-hmm. first up, anyway. Right. And uh, yeah, a six part mini series mm-hmm. is uh, being in development mm-hmm. now, as mm-hmm. we speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, are you involved with it? I, I am as the script consultant. Uh huh. So, yes, they rejected my screenplay out of hand, brought in the professional, as they should. All right. 
But I'm uh, working with her and I've spent some very intense time with her. Uh And now we just uh, communicate. In fact, I saw her only less than two weeks ago in in Australia. And uh, yeah, I've seen the episode breakdown. Uh (laughs) Has me cringing a bit. And, so um, there is stuff about your backstory yeah. and your relationship with Lala. Yes, they have I decided. Think that would be interesting, though, don't you think? I mean, I know I know you're self-conscious about it, but mm-hmm. that the notion. I mean, there's a story within the story, and one of it, one of the things I think that makes uh, this book so successful, in addition to the words on the page, is the backstory. Is the fact that you knew Lolly, that you spent this time with him, that you came in not knowing really very much at all about. Auschwitz and you know and, and that it changed your life at the same time that you know it that's the biggest surprise to me that that happened mm-hmm. I thought the book just stood alone mm-hmm. and if ever I was talking about it I'd be talking about the book mm-hmm. uh, and so it came as quite a surprise to me and I don't think I knew how to react initially when mm-hmm. people in the audience would then ask a personal question about my time with him mm-hmm. and I was having to do a double take mm-hmm. oh really you want to know about that right but that just kind of snowballed right, right until the two did become entwined. The story and the telling of the story. So yeah, they've written it into the miniseries, haven't they? Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is, uh, I won't hold you to it. They're they're working on it. We will see it one day, not too long. They're hoping uh, this time next year. This time next year. Uh, On television. On television. But we don't know where yet. Because they're all all fighting over you. So how how is this... um, Changed your changed your life. I mean, in terms of uh, the publication of the book and the writing of the book and the uh, you know meeting Lolly and uh, and then having a book that is you know a worldwide sensation. I mean, it's not just a good book. It's not just a successful book. It is a phenomenon. Um, you're the same sweet uh, <laughs> New Zealand girl you always were. I know, but uh, yeah. how how has it changed your life? Uh, oh, absolutely, it has. And you know, not so long ago, my husband said to me. This isn't how I saw our retirement panning out. <laughs> oh, and I'll suck it up, princess, and come on, we're on a nice roll here. My children say to me, does that mean you're not around as much to help out with the grandkids? Oh, yeah. yeah, sorry, you had them, you bring them up. <laughs> uh, so how it's changed my life is the amazing people I now get to meet. Mm-hmm. It's not about where I am mm-hmm. and, and how many hours I have to spend in a plane to get where I'm going. It's when I get to the end and these amazing people I meet. And, you know, yesterday I had this experience of being in a town not far from here, Wilton, Mm -hmm. in Connecticut. And that day, an evening I spent there, will stay with me forever. As a huge number of people, 400 school kids to begin with, Mm -hmm. who were just so respectful. High school kids or or middle school? Yeah, high school. High school, Mm -hmm. And then I think there was 400-plus adults in the evening at an event and mm-hmm. how they were so warm and beautiful and wanted to know about the story in me. And, and that's what, to me, has changed, the fact that I meet amazing people. I've got a whole swag of business cards of people. And uh, I'll try and keep in touch with them because mm-hmm. I love those relationships, mm-hmm. just like I love the fact that you and I connected mm-hmm. in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Over a few bottles. Of uh, over a few bottles of something. <laughs> At least it wasn't Sliverbits. Right, right. Sliverbits in Slovakia. Uh, right. Bad for my liver. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, do I wonder if we have questions from the audience? We have a lot of love, not only for the book, but a lot of people are just saying thank you for this conversation. I think they find it really 
interesting. Somebody said that it's a captivating. They just want to listen. Um, <clears throat> so I know you talked about what is unique about this book that you had this relationship with Lolly, but why was it so important to him to have a person that was not Jewish tell this story? That was his hard and fast rule that he gave to his son because he wanted somebody who had no baggage, no backstory of their own, that had no connection to the Holocaust. And I doubt if there's a Jewish person alive that doesn't have a connection somewhere to the Holocaust because he wanted his story told and he wanted it told in such a way that it would reach the wider reader and community that it wasn't being told in a Jewish way. He um, has been pointed out to me by many people he was a wise man and many Jewish people have said this to me, Lully was a wise man doing this. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. To choose someone who wasn't Jewish? Choose somebody who wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No baggage. Mm -hmm. I have got baggage by the way but you're not going to hear about it. <laughs> So yesterday you spoke to a group of students about the book and they had read it and I, we heard that they were just silent. <laughs> they were saying, you know, to get all of those kids to be silent, it's a big feat. Um, what were some of their responses to this discussion yeah. and this book in general? Look, um, sadly for the students, I talked too long and I never gave them enough chance to actually ask uh, questions and I think I was only time for about two of them and I felt bad about that. But that happens, as you can see, I ramble about Between us. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, look, I, I was unfortunate I never gave them the opportunity. And I should have, because I was told by the, um, the head teacher there that they had spent time in classrooms coming up with a list of questions mm -hmm. that I never answered. I can only hope that I answered a lot of their questions in amongst my general talk to them. But, oh, they were lovely. They were so responsive. Do you, do you do a lot of talking in schools uh, elsewhere? Have you have you in the UK or in Australia? Not uh, as much as I'd like to. Uh, 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 they really are to me my target audience. <laughs> and um, every school every school has asked me. I have said yes to uh -huh. either in the uh, UK or in Australia. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, only about ten twelve days ago, I went back to the college I went to forty years ago. Yeah, I just doubted myself then. Because this small town in New Zealand, somebody stumbled upon the book and contacted me and said, did you go to Te Aumutu College? And I wrote back and went, yep. And they said, you've got to come back and talk to your old school. And I did. So every single school, including a couple that my managers and people in Australia don't know about, I go to. Uh -huh. UK too. Uh -huh. And some of the towns in the UK, uh -huh. they've combined from smaller areas to bring three or four different high school groups of students to the one school. So that you can speak to them, yeah. to address them, that's right. right. And, and Jewish groups, I know you're, yes, you're giving very a, much a, so. a reading at the, the Jewish Museum, the Heritage Museum mm -hmm. here next week. I think week. the London Synagogue, right. um, communities prisons, in Australia. Prisons. Right, right. And, the, and libraries. It's, a, it's, I mean, the reach of this book is just enormous, from young, young people to very old people to people. I think people who were, were related in some way to the Holocaust, but I also think people who maybe are learning about the Holocaust through this book for the first time. Um, yeah, and that's got to be a good thing. Right, no, and then go on to read, you know, more and, and understand more. I mean, I think it's an introduction to 
to history for a lot of people. Actually, I knew that it was going to um, actually resonate before it was ever published mm -hmm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. Because my son-in-law, 34-year-old police sergeant in Australia, asked me to read the manuscript mm -hmm. and told me he hadn't read a book since he left school aged 18. I gave it to him and he was reading at night when he came home from work. And he was ringing me sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, tell me more about this. And the next day, tell me about this. Mm -hmm. And then after three or four days, he rang me up one day and he said, did you know? because he had read something and he felt the need to go and find it out for himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. he thought he was now telling me. Right, right. I went, yes, gotcha. Right, right. he went and showed, he, yeah, it was, it was the gateway, as I said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of comments about maybe other things in culture and, and keeping this book in the back of their minds. So they're saying, you know, uh, Lolly reminds me of L.A. Wiesel and uh, watching Schindler's List, they, mm -hmm. as they're watching, they just keep coming back to this. There's that true story and they, you know, I guess imagine him being there. Um, so there's a lot of love for that, I just wanted to let you know. But Thank the you. next question is, what books did you find inspirational in your own path to becoming an author? Um, the ones that, just like Lully's story, which is what made me attracted to deciding to, you know, absolutely hone this in, always based on true stories uh, and real events. And so I would seek out uh, biographies. But you know, when I was growing up in a very, very small town, not even town, New Zealand, we didn't have many books, either at the school, because it only had three classrooms, no room for a library. But what my parents did buy for us was Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm -hmm. And I found growing up that that was what I was drawn to. And I'm reading about people in countries that are so exotic from this tiny little place in New Zealand I am, where there were no the diversity. It just didn't exist during that time. And so it was always, for me, about finding other stories that were based in real places and people. And of course, I read David Baldacci and I read Lee Child and you got to have your escapism. Um, there are some wonderful books that have just recently come out and are coming out that are also set in this timeline. Um, there's one that hopefully will be in your country here soon, very soon. It's called The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Now, it's more contemporary, but along the same lines, but it deals with the Syrian situation mm -hmm. and refugees there. Um, the Red Ribbon, again, a story set in the time of the Holocaust about young girls that were being dressmakers in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Mm -hmm. So these are the stories that grab me, along with David Baldacci and John Grisham. And yeah, so it's also, these students that you talk to, it's great for younger readers as well. Um, we also had a comment about, you know, Bali's prejudice and how he, he kind of came to terms with that. So maybe not repeating the past and being able to talk together. Is there a good synergy between the YA reader and maybe their parents and how that works? You know, there's one statement that Lali said to me many, many times, and it kind of just wraps this all up for me, and hopefully for you too. In the book, I talk about his relationship with the Roma people in the gypsy camp. And to him, and what he enforced to me time and time again, it doesn't matter what your race, your religion, your sexual orientation, your country you come from. It doesn't matter because you will 
all bleed the same colour red when you are shot. And he was expecting to be shot every day. And to him, we all bleed the same colour red. And to me, that's what I carry through with, we're not different. We might look different. Great, we want to look different. But we're all going to bleed the same colour red should we be injured. So this is from the Queen's Library that's listening in. Was he the only tattooist? And if not, did he build any relationships with the other ones? And I know he, yeah. we talk in the book about people he brought in and who he replaced, but... Mm. He was the only person that the SS identified as being the tatavera. What would happen each day is that as the, the trains and the truckloads of prisoners came in, the SS would walk down the row and just grab half a dozen others, bring them up to Lully and say, here, teach them what to do. And he always had... Um, multiple copies of, of the stamps with the numbers on it and bottles of ink and he would just there teach them then and there to help him with this load of uh, transported people. I hate calling them prisoners, they're not bloody prisoners. But then they would disappear into the mainstream of the group they'd come with and the next day would be a different group of people. He was the Tatavara, he is the person who the political wing of the SS gave that title to and who would give to him each day the instructions of where to be, who gave him a bag to carry around. But when he was threatened by any other SS, he could hold it up and go, politician up Tai Long, which meant political wing, and they left him alone. Mm -hmm. So another level of protection. Mm -hmm. Yes, a privileged, protected prisoner. Don't shy away from that. But a man who got freedom of movement as a result of that, mm -hmm. which enabled him to meet a girl. Right, and to and to get a little bit more food for people and exactly. to protect people. You know, to use it for good. Mm. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Um, thank you so much to everyone who listened in. This is a wonderful conversation between author Heather Morris, a tattooist of Auschwitz, and her editor, Sarah Nelson. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye, Queens. <laughs>